Hey there, and welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show, a podcast for paradigm changers. Each week, I speak with another influential leader who's changing the conversation for their audience, their industry, and this world. I am so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Neil Goffrey, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show. Um, Want to just share a little bit about you uh, for all of us listening, and then uh, we'll dive into it. So Neil Godfrey, financial voice for women, pioneer of the topic, kids and money. Uh, you're a 24-time author, I think more than that now, uh, with a New York Times bestseller, Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Responsible Children. You started your journey at Chase Manhattan Bank, joining as one of the first female executives in the 70s, later became president of the first women's uh, bank and founder of First Children's Bank. In 1987, you formed Children's Financial Network with a mission of educating children and their parents about money. Uh, you served as a national spokesperson for companies like Microsoft, Fidelity, appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show a number of times, Good Morning America, etc., and uh, have earned a bunch of awards, including the Muriel Siebert Lifetime Achievement Award for your trailblazing work in financial literacy. So thanks for being here. I'm excited for this great. conversation. It's great to be here, Jeffrey. I love what you're doing. Good. Thank you. Um, so I want to start at the beginning a bit. Um, you, you were one of the first executives at Chase in what, 72? Yeah, 1972, when uh -huh. they decided to experiment to have a few women. like A few women. Yeah, like one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. go through the training program to become executives. And I didn't know it was supposed to be an experiment to fail, but I, I messed that up. So it worked. Uh-huh. Got it. So first of all, you strike me as someone who just goes for it. Um, you know, like, uh, all right, I'll, I'll head in there. Um, wh what was it like working in that industry in the seventies as well? well it, it was all male except for support staff that was all female. Um, so it was, I didn't think about it in terms of it being that tough, but the fact of the matter was I was the only woman in the room ever. And I decided that I would just use it to my advantage in terms of, you know, I was different. I would stand out. I had to know my stuff. I had to know absolutely everything. Mm -hmm your mouth and make a mistake because then that's you know the the their ability to jump on you but okay so i could do that and there were some funny circumstances too there was a big bank meeting i was holding and i was hosting with actually it was the first loan that we were making to the government of argentina mm -hmm. all the people were flying up and obviously my name is neil godfrey and i was setting up the meeting but they thought Neil Godfrey was a male. So I walked in to the room and it was filled with diplomats and filled with people from literally all over the world and the IMF and everybody. And what they did when I walked in the room, they said to me, would you mind getting us coffee and tea and gave me orders of how they wanted it? And I was very specific. And my secretary was standing behind me and she was like, and I gave her one of those looks and it was like, don't say a word. 
So I was taking coffee orders and how do you like it? And I like it with two lumps of sugar and I like it with this. And I was like with that and I'm carrying the trays in and she was dying. And I said, Melanie, zip it. Watch what's going to happen. So then it was time to sit down after about 15 minutes of coffee and chatter with them talking among themselves. And we sat down and I sat at the head of the table and welcomed the gentleman for the meeting and introduced myself as Neil Godfrey. Jeffrey, the, you could hear the jaws drop. You could hear, and I got everything I wanted in that negotiation. They were so mortified by what they had done. And I was so gracious about it. And I would say, Ambassador, is the coffee sweet enough for you? I'd be happy to go out and get more. They they dropped dead. So it was like, hey, I'm a good time. Works for me. So, yeah. you know, you can switch the paradigm around too. I love it. I love it. it. You know, one of the things that's always fascinating to me is how life sets us up with our ability to do things in ways that we might not expect. You know, some people, it might be uh, their name. It might be their height. It might be some other attribute. I'm curious, you know, in the world of finance, has having Neil as your name been an asset in ways you didn't expect? Well, it's been both. Um, uh-huh. In life, I received a draft notice. Uh, the government had me down as a male. And it was very funny reporting to the draft board at 10 o'clock in the morning, standing with the guys, having them whistle. And no, I wouldn't stand in my underwear, you know. At three o'clock in the afternoon, it got a little old when my gynecologist had to come appear in person to prove that I was a woman. That got old. It's worked for me and against me. In financial world, I was hired to be the first female banker in Brazil in 1974. And I flew down, got an apartment. My husband had moved. We had set this whole thing up and I showed up for work. And everything had been done through email. And they had actually never spoken to me, but it was all done through my resume and everything else. And when I showed up, they said, there is no way we will have a female banker be in Brazil. And they sent me home. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. So it works for and against you. So that was, you know, we slept down and then we had a schlep back. Yeah. Oh. yeah. When did you move from I'm working in banking to I need to move into financial literacy for kids. What, where did that come from? Uh, How did it transpire? Tell me a bit about that journey. Well, I was president of the first woman's bank and we needed a woman's bank because the Fair Credit Act had not been enacted until 1974. And that meant before 74, women could not get credit with their own name. My first credit card at Chase Manhattan Bank had my then husband's name, then is the operative word, by the way, then husband's name on it with a permission slip from him to use my own credit. I was the executive at Chase. He was a law student and had no credit. So, you know, it it was starting to get old. It wasn't cute anymore. Um, And while I was at First Women's, I just did research. Why are women so disempowered? And it was because we were never taught anything. Mm. Children about money. Mm-hmm. Little weren't really taught, but they were brought in by their fathers into the financial world. So I was at that point divorced. It was 1985. I had two little kids and I took them all over New York to look for books to teach them about money. 
So I was out as mommy looking for books. And we went to about 10 bookstores. And my three-year-old daughter had had it at that point. And so in one of the bookstores, after I asked about, you know, books for money, about money to teach kids, and they said, once again, there are no books to teach kids about money. My daughter said, mommy, why don't you just write the books? So she saw that look on my face, which was, wait a minute, I know how to do big bank deals and I know how to run a bank. I don't know how to write a book. And she saw the look on my face and she stood there and she said, oh, you're afraid. So, <laughs> being the great mother I am, I crouched, established eye contact with this little three-year-old and said, no, I'm not afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid. I didn't know what that meant. I was way outside my comfort zone. So I decided, okay. I can do that. Yeah. People aren't born knowing how to write books. So I did some research and you have to entertain kids in order to educate them. So I created cartoon characters that have financial personalities. So of course, Penny Bright, today's savvy feline, an entrepreneur, and she knows her fashion and her tax code and Dollar Bill Buck and the Market Brothers, Bull and Bear. And they run the blue chip deli in Green Street Common where the characters live. And they sometimes cook muffins and buns and they burn the buns and they throw them away and they call them junk buns. So I entered <laughs> myself uh, writing this at two o'clock in the morning and they drive a special car called a convertible debenture. So anyway, I wrote the book. And if you're going to start a topic, you go to the world's largest publisher. So at that point, it was Simon and Schuster. So I ran into Simon and Schuster with this manuscript, the kids money book. And they said, thanks for stopping by. There are no books to teach kids about money. It's not a topic of interest. Banished mm-hmm. me to the streets and you know, the deal don't cry in front of them. So I made it about two blocks and I burst into tears. I was shut down. And then I walked a little more and it was no, 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 no. They need proof of concept. So I opened up the first children's bank at FAO Schwartz, the toy store, a real bank for kids and got a charter and a license and also an institute for youth entrepreneurship up in Harlem to work with at-risk children, to bring them into the economy, to empower them to be entrepreneurs. So I started a greeting card company with those kids, with 11-year-olds, and it was really successful. And the first children's bank was like crazy successful. Diana flew over with the Royal children to open up accounts. That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. What happened at the children's bank? Well, first of all, I'm like, Oh, so I went into FAO shorts and I opened a bank in FAO shorts. Uh, that you don't just do that overnight. Um, so did you know people at FAO shorts and then what did the, what role did the bank have? What did it do? What was it there to teach the kids? Well, um, yeah, I mean, my thing in life is just go figure it out. So I called FAO and said, I want to speak to the chairman. And um, I did, got an appointment. And I said, here's something really cool. I need 150 square feet. Um, I want to set up a real bank. We need security and certain things, but I'll pay for that. And I'll make sure that it's a secure institution And you have security and my guys are going to have to check your security and everything else. And it's going to be a limited service branch. So I checked with the New York State banking authorities. I don't want to make loans. I only want to take deposits. 
will be a teaching institution and the kids can open up checking accounts. And I found a law in New York, you're going to love this, that said, if you're six years old and you can sign your own name, you can have a checking account. <laughs> who, who did that law? Who did that law? God knows. And why a six-year-old needs a checking account. But I thought, da-da-da. Uh-huh. But I made sure they were all UGMA accounts where there was a parent because I didn't want to get into anything dealing with children in, in, directly like that. It had to be done through the parents. So I got the FDIC to approve it. My tellers, you'll love this. My tellers sat so they would be at the same eye level with the children so they wouldn't be standing above. So when I got approval from the FDIC, and I said, we were serving little people. That's what they thought. So uh-huh. thought it was a branch for little people. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. So I told my board, just leave it alone. Don't just leave it alone. It's, they don't, it's, it's good. They are indeed little people. So anyway, that's what we got the approval with. And it was very successful. In fact, on weekends, we would change the traffic pattern at FAO, which they weren't happy about because people were making deposits and it was, it was fun. And the kids were really learning by having a real device. And then they had their own checking account and their own, it was before debit cards and they could go make purchases and they mm-hmm. really learned. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Savings accounts too. So it was yeah. in savings. They just couldn't make any, you know, we didn't have any loans. Right. Right. What was the stated mission of the children's bank? To educate and empower children and their parents by having real financial tools. Got it. I'm curious if doing this work, writing the first book, opening the first children's bank, how much of it was a, seeing a gap and a need B uh, being angry at injustice or C feeling an inner call that says, I'm the one I've got to do this or all of the above D. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that's a great question. I think it was a, um, there was a problem that needed to be solved. And if I wasn't going to solve it when I knew I could solve it, because as an entrepreneur, you just think you can do it. You don't think you can't do it. Yeah. Why would you do that? Um, but I couldn't get Simon and Schuster to publish my first book. They wouldn't yeah. do it. So even after the first children's bank, I went back to them and said, ta-da, proof of concept. Look what I've done. And it's so successful. And they still said, we will not take a risk to publish mm-hmm. a book because there are no books. Right. I guess that's when I got angry. And so when I hit the streets again in tears, because here I was proof of concept, I know it works. Yeah. No, there's interest. Every single news outlet covered stories on this. So what I did was I said, oh, put your big girl panties on. You know how to do leverage buyouts. You know how to do merger and acquisition work from your days at Chase Manhattan Bank. I put together the largest merger at that point in the history of the United States, the DuPont Conoco merger. It was $4 billion. Mm-hmm. I figured this out. So what I did was I bought a publishing company, hmm. a, a division of Macmillan under the proviso that they would publish my first book. And I was chairman of the board. So of course they were going to publish my first book and right. ta-da, they did. So 
We sold yeah. 1,000 copies of The Kid's Money Book. I sold the company. I went back to Simon & Schuster because I didn't want to be in the publishing world. Yep. And they said, ah, there's another book, Proof of Concept. <sighs> wow. That's when they took me on as a property. So there was a tiny bit of, I'll show you in, in my thinking, but it was more of, we have to do this. I have to do it and I have to go figure it out. And then I got the call from Oprah Winfrey and then life changed. Yeah. Yeah. You were on the Oprah show, what, 13 times? 13 times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, one of the, I think Legrand, so for, for listeners, Legrand's a producer for this show um, and said you were one of the most frequent guests like in the history of the show at that point. Yeah. And, yeah. and he was great. He so believed in this. I mean, he showed up my at my house to see that my seven-year-old son and 10-year-old and daughter could actually do chores, earn an allowance, balance their budget. And he was like, oh, my God. And said to Oprah, we're going to have this seven-year-old kid on air. And Oprah had never had a seven-year-old do a segment. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. we walked out, Legrand was great because Oprah looked at him like, are you nuts? <laughs> and Legrand was like, we're good to go. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, can I tell that story? Yeah, yeah. It was great. So Legrand sitting there with his arms folded, looking at Oprah because Oprah like fell in love with Rhett. So that's my son. So this seven-year-old is doing, um, Oprah, I have chores that I have to do. And he's going down his chore list. And he goes, I have to water the plants and I have to feed the cats because Oprah, we have five cats and I have to feed them every single day. <laughs> now, that is enough of an explanation for Oprah Winfrey. Okay, she got that. And her mm-hmm. million audience understood those words. But that seven-year-old mentality, he put his hand in his, on his hip and I thought, oh, where are we going? And he goes, because Oprah, if I don't feed the cats every day, then they starve to death and they die. And mom hates dead cats around the house. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, Really? Okay, well, I was just shut down. I received 2,952 letters from PETA members around the country about my dead cats. I do not have dead cats in my house. So then I was just like, oh, God, what have I done? So then he keeps going. So he's talking about he has to budget his money and do everything. And he goes, Oprah, I have to do my chores, all my chores every single day in order to earn my whole allowance because otherwise I won't earn my allowance. So she interrupts this little kid and starts yelling. That's ridiculous. You shouldn't have to do all your chores to do all of your work. That's crazy. You should be able to earn some money by doing some of your chores. And I, oh God, we never covered that. I, I, you know, that was not part of what. The deal. Yeah. So he puts his hand back on his hip and he goes, yeah, but Oprah, that doesn't make sense in, in terms of the way it works in real life, right? Oprah, don't you have to do your whole show to get paid all your money? Uh-huh. Just stop after the first commercial and then say, I'm done. You know, Oprah, the way it works in real life. No work, no pay. So it was like, yes. 
move in after the dead cat comment. So he was brilliant. And Legrand had um, my son and my daughter back on like four times because they were the best. You know, don't talk to me about it. Look at them. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they get what, it. what did you see start to change in the world? Like, uh, you know, did you have letters from parents saying, hey, my kid read the book and we're doing this or, you know, meeting people at book signings or what have you. What did you start to see change in the world of children and money? Uh, and, and well, I'll stop there for a moment. The biggest change for me is I didn't have to explain anymore about why it was important to teach kids about money. Every time I would walk into a meeting with a bank or somebody that I wanted to support this, they would say, why would anyone want to teach kids about money? Why is it important to teach kids about money? And I didn't have to start from, are you kidding? Because to me, it's a rhetorical question. Do mm -hmm. you want to raise financially responsible kids? Who says no? Everyone, Jeffrey said no. After Oprah, everybody started saying yes. Hmm. If you look at the topic today, there are literally millions of people involved and no one has to explain anymore. So for me, it was, I didn't have to explain why this was important. And I'm about to come out this week, actually, with my 28th book, Be Money Smart in Tough Times for Parents and Grandparents. And I don't have to explain what that title means. Right. Because people get it. Yeah. And they understand where we are. Yeah. And when I first started, I had to explain why I was doing this and why it was important. You know, I love you saying that. Because a lot of the folks that I work with are doing uh, work that maybe hasn't been done before that people haven't seen before, right? And it's a very different form of marketing, educational marketing versus differentiation in the marketplace. Uh, when in my 20s, I worked at a web conferencing startup in Silicon Valley. And I remember there was two of us, there was Placeware and WebEx. And uh, WebEx was eventually bought by Cisco yeah. and Placeware was bought by Microsoft, right? Um, but... Uh, those early days, nobody knew what the heck a web conference was. I mean, I'm talking 21 years ago, right? Yep. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I got the job because I'd been a school teacher uh, who quit my job. My mom and dad invited me to India. And uh, cool. I was like, I know. <laughs> so awesome. Uh so I quit all my jobs. Uh, at the time, I was like waiting tables and, and substitute teaching. And uh, my my superintendent of schools, when I got back, he's like, I need you back at work. And I'm like, I quit. I did too. I'm now the you know educational consultant for this dot-com startup in education. So I had six months at this dot-com, which was enough to get a job in Silicon Valley. Love you had experience uh, right. with six months of dot-com under your belt in the right. year 2000. Right. Um, but all of our marketing was education. What is this thing? Right. And the first couple of years I was there, it was all education based marketing. At about 2002 or so, uh, it started to shift into differentiation us versus them and why go with us versus them. Right. Um, 
And and I, I, I think I would have been flat on my butt with the rest of a lot of folks with the dot-com bust had it not been for 9-11 um, and financial crisis of dot-com bust because suddenly people didn't want to fly and the industry took off, right? Um, but uh, it, it is incumbent upon us, I think, if we are doing cutting edge work to educate our audience. It's a requirement. Uh, and we can't expect, we, I don't think we can expect to market in the same way we see a lot of other marketing, right? We've got we've to find a justification. We've got to find a way to have the conversation so that people have the light bulb moment of why. And it sounds like a lot of, especially your earlier career was finding, how do I have this light bulb moment with these folks? You're a hundred percent right. And the idea of finding that connectivity of making them understand it was a problem. Mm -hmm. It's making them see what I'm seeing. That's it. That's it. That's it. You've got to have people see what you see and have them not just see what you see in terms of the what, but the relevance to their problem. Absolutely. Yeah. and, and building a story, don't you want your kids to be financially independent and leave the nest and be able to have a job and be able to support a family? And don't you want that for your children? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to you when your mother lost her husband, your father, and she didn't know how to write a check and she had never paid a bill? Yeah. How did that feel? Yeah. And thank God you were there to help, but suppose you weren't. So it's that engagement of letting them see yeah. what we saw. Yeah. And we were just beginning to talk about sex, drugs, and you know, nuclear war. Right. Those are topics that are incredibly important, but you don't have to deal with them every day. But you right. do have to deal with money every day. Yep. yep. And if you haven't bought or sold something. Your mortgage is ticking. Your electric bill is ticking. Your money is happening in your life. It is the one constant with us. Yeah. You want to empower your children. So I got them, you know, the bed of music would come up and then I got them carrying the flag. Then they got it. Then I could talk about, and here's how I do it. Uh Right. But in the very beginning, I would blow it because I would just think, well, any moron would think that. Right. Come on. And that's, that, right? that's, that's the trap is, well, wouldn't everybody see this well, the way I see it? Yeah. Like, what's the matter with you, Dodo? So I didn't say the words, but I certainly expressed it because it was like, I just ran it. Are you kidding? Yeah. You know, yeah. and even with the publishing company, wait, let me see if I've got this. There are no books about this. You don't want to actually be on the cutting edge. Right. Like, really? Yeah. And yeah. by the way, you might want to look at the publishing world today, but hey, who's who's saying anything about innovation? <laughs> you know, far be it from me. Um, but really? Okay. Yeah. And so, I, th- I think th- I think that's the thing when you're innovating or trailblazing is uh, the thing that you see becomes obvious to you once you've seen it. You can't unsee what you've seen. Right. I love and, that. That, that's just, you know, even those, uh, those trick like pictures and stuff where you have to, I like, know, you know, that's it. And once you see it, you're done, you're done. You're done. 
be anything else. You're so right. That's right. Look at the goblet or look at the face. Okay, I saw the goblet. We're done. But what the problem is of the entrepreneur, and I work with, I'm in, involved in at, at Columbia University as an executive in residence, coaching and being part of a class in innovation, that if you do not engage the audience, mm-hmm. you have drunk the Kool-Aid, assume everyone in the room is still sipping their latte. Do not even think that, that it's going to translate into anything other than arrogance when you say to them, duh, why wouldn't you do Bitcoin when they have no freaking idea what you're talking about? Yeah. And it translates, especially with this next generation of being young whippersnapper, arrogant and you've lost your audience and remember you're trying to get money from an older generation who by the way has every ability to go thanks for stopping by yeah right right yep uh a lot of what i do is around storytelling right and what i love about this conversation is you're a storyteller I mean, you're on your, you're about to publish your 28th book, right? Uh, and, 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 and you didn't start with a book about finances in the traditional way we've seen them before. You started with a children's book. How do I make this story translate? Uh, and uh, I, I think that's a big part of that connection of having people get it and see through your eyes is finding Where's the story in here that they can grab hold of, that they will see, wh- whoever the they is. If they're little kids, all right, well, let's let's make them, you know, bakers and they'll have muffins and, you know, what whatever. Uh, but I think that's a huge, huge part of, I mean, you literally buy a part of a publishing company to tell the story. Um, I'm curious. So you're, you, know, you started this work at FAO Schwartz, on Oprah, first book. Uh, Have you connected with uh, anybody that was a kid at that time? Maybe opened their first bank account at FAO Schwartz. Maybe, you know, were watching, you know, their parents watched the Oprah show, bought the book, brought them through it. What are some of the stories you've heard later in life? Well, it happens all the time. It's very cool. Um, there was a, um, a family I worked with on Oprah and that Legrand had brought in. And the daughter was in college first semester. They were from Texas. And she racked up uh, $10,000 in credit card debt buying clothing in about 15 minutes. Yep. So it was one of the stories and one of the people that Legrand had brought in. And it was, Neil, what would you do? So Neil did tough love. And I said to the parents, are you willing to do this? I would pull her out of school. I would pull her out, let her work, let her try to earn some of the money back to pay back the credit card debt, and then let her go to school back in again in a year. And the parents agreed to do that. So what I did is I worked with the child and we have stayed in touch over the years. And the child 
um, still talks about what had happened. I mean, she hated me. Yeah. Hated hated me. So, um, yeah, which I hated me too, but she hated me more. And she worked and she will talk about what this meant to her to really, and it took her a couple of months to kick in. And it was like how hard it was to earn $10,000 to pay this back and to start earning her own money. As it turned out, she decided also during this time, she wanted to be an architect. She went back into school, went into architectural school, graduated in the six years, went on for a master's degree. She's a parent, she's teaching her kids with the same exact stuff. And it's really, it's really cool. And she's an artist and her mother's an artist. And they actually, in Legrand seen it, flew back and did a, a custom tile thing of Neil's life in, in one of my rooms and hand-painted money doesn't grow on trees stuff for me. Mm-hmm. clothing and everything because I'm a little out there and they stayed in touch for the very reason because it had such a profound effect but I will see I will be speaking to a group of people you know I give speeches all the time not not in this world of zoom but you know and someone will go oh my god my mother had your book I've been on your allowance system for for are you kidding I'm doing yeah it happens all the time yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. So, I believe it. Next generation. Yeah. It's cool. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since then, but before we move on from this, let me just ask this. So I've got uh, my nephew turns three today, tax baby. Uh, my niece is six. I've got another niece who is 15 and about to enter an arts high school. Uh and I've got a 19-year-old niece in college studying to be a uh, criminal psychologist, something about that. So I'm especially thinking about my three-year-old and six-year-old uh, uh, nephew and niece. When you talk with parents, especially kids that age, if there are a few lessons that they must No, if they're like, if there's anything I can bestow upon you, it's this. What is it? The big thing is don't make money a secret in the household. We have this very puritanical view, which polite people don't talk about money. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I was certainly raised that way. Yeah, we all were. And so if you are, then there's no way to expect those kids to understand anything. And and Mm -hmm. to money of course money grows on trees i mean we never talked about it and remember all kids ever see you do with money is spend it they Mm -hmm. don't save they don't see you pay bills they don't see you give to charity they don't see you do anything other than spend it so that's the mentality you get what you want you use that magic piece of plastic okay it works your cell phone or however you're paying for for things today yeah So talk about money. Mommy and daddy get money by working. Yep. We go to work and and this is, we get paid. And then we have bills. And see, when I use that credit card, there's a bill that comes at the end of the month and I have to pay that. Mm. And 
then talk to them about taxes. Each of us have to pay some things because look at all the stuff around here. Yeah, our roads, our electricity. Roads and bridges. And, and then when they're in the car, play a game. What are the things that pay for taxes? Oh, look, there's a library. Do you think that that's private or do you think that we pay for taxes? Oh, you know what? That's part of our library. Oh, look at that street. We just went over the bridge. We paid a toll. Oh, does that money go to pay? Yeah, that does. So you start having them understand how their world works and you get them involved in earning, saving, spending, and sharing when they're yeah. And I frankly start them an allowance between age three and five. That's when they start connecting to their world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, if there is one of your books or a few of your books that uh, I should get from my uh, brother and sister-in-law, which ones are they? Well, I will send you my new book, which is um, Be Money Smart in Tough Times for Parents and Grandparents. And I talk right. about kids, raising kids of any age. And it's not only in tough times, it's in all times, but especially in these tough times where kids may have seen a layoff or kids certainly know other people who've had a layoff or lost a parent or are, have job insecurity. It's really important for these kids to also know that things are not always okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would say that one. And then Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Responsible Children is kind of the mainstay. Yeah. Um, you know, and because of Oprah, that hit number one on the New York yeah. bestseller list. So, right. yeah. But- awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah. It's interesting talking about like, uh, oh, we go to work. You know, my, uh, my niece, uh, the other, the other week, she's like, uncle Jeffrey, what if I want you to be my dad and then my dad can be my uncle. Um, right. Of course I get uncle status, uh, cause I don't, I don't have to do a lot of the parent things. Right. Um, and I'm like, oh yeah, how would that work? Well, you know, uh, with, with COVID, of course, everybody's working from home. So she's, she's seeing it Well, in the morning. You walk, you walk to that back room (laughs) and then your boss is named this and you talk with him and, you know, she's telling me all about how to do the job uh, so that I can go to work. And and then afterwards, then you can make lunch for me. And uh, so tell me a little bit about what you've been doing. So seventies, you were in banking. And then the 80s, you begin to move into this world of financial literacy for children after working at uh, Women's Bank. Uh, what have the last few decades for you been? What, what's been the projects that have kept you going? Well, I moved into the world of electronics and created three mobile video gaming apps. Um, and the characters um, had a facelift. And which we all need. (laughs) I partnered, which is really pretty cool with Tom Hester, who did Shrek. And I flew out to LA to work with he and his wife. And the way Tom works is he sculpts. So he sculpts the character. So I would talk through what I wanted them to look like and sculpt them. And we created a new character called Schmutz because we all have schmutz in our life that needs to be cleaned up. Yeah. And I moved into the world of combining money and ecology together. 
And I have another book called The Echo Effect, The Greening of Money, because saving resources and saving money happen together. And that we need to be responsible for all of it. Yeah. um, I And actually, I'm looking for a media company, you know, here or abroad who wants to pick the characters up and, and take them into having financial product and, you know, the content side of it. I've stayed on the content side. So I advise lots of companies. I write for a whole bunch of different places. And I am, as I said before, an executive in residence at Columbia Graduate School of Business, and I'm involved in innovation. I'm an innovation fellow also, and I am involved in a course called Think Bigger, the Innovation Method, actually teaching innovation to the next Mm -hmm. generation. So I love staying in touch with the next gen. I um, also work with Syracuse University to help wounded veterans who are returning to become entrepreneurs So I get to help them change what their life is because their life has been changed. They can't do what they thought they would be doing. Um, And I love doing that. And I've done tons of charitable work. I was on the board of UNICEF, on the board of UN Women. I'm involved in women's causes and children's causes. And, you know, I do believe that we need to make sure we're there. Yeah. So I am advising four or five new companies, fintech companies, and even Greenlight, who came out with the debit card, and they found me when they were incubating in uh, Georgia Tech years and years ago, when yeah. guys came up and said, would you work with us? And it's like, of course I will. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Tell me a bit about um, what, as you've been teaching innovation, I mean, you're an innovator who is teaching innovation. And uh, I've been a teacher uh, as well as someone who does stuff, right? And doing and teaching the doing are different things. You have to decode. How, how do I think? What, what, how do I approach that, right? Make the unconscious competence uh, conscious and, and teachable. Uh, as you've moved into teaching innovation, what are some of the things, because a lot of the folks listening to this are innovators or called to be innovators in, in their line of work in the world. What are some of the key things you teach folks about innovation? Well, I'm working with a professor called Sheena Iyengar, who is a star. She's unbelievable. Um, she's a chaired professor at Columbia Graduate School of Business and happens to be blind. And she's teaching, she got her PhD from Stanford in choice. And it's just like, oh my God. So she's my hero. And she put together this course. And the biggest thing about innovation is finding the problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. And what we actually did is dissected my work life and journey into the method that she's actually teaching. I didn't know I was doing it. And when I bumping up against um, problems, it was when you go back to the innovation model that we're teaching, it was like, well, of course, because you didn't break the problem down to sub problems. It was a universal problem. Well, you can't solve a universal problem. That's like solving pollution. Well, that's cool. Well, you don't do that. Or it's like Jeff Bezos. He didn't start Amazon by solving 
the delivery system and hooking the internet into it. He was delivering books. That's right. it. That's yep. all he did. That's all he did. Yep. So he broke it down to a sub problem. And then you start and then you move from there. Same thing that you were doing in your web X. Yeah. That you you broke it down. If you do not break it down, you will not get there. So I, as an entrepreneur, kept bumping up against, well, I can do this and I can do that and I can do this and I can do. Stop it. Stop it. Do the sub problem. What are you mm-hmm. going to do when you show up? You can tell them, of course, this will morph into something larger, but be very specific. So the course actually teaches what innovation is. And the brilliance of the course is, is that all innovation is based upon something that came before. Yeah. No invention, none. I dare anyone to come up with something that is not based upon something before. Our internet is communication. Well, you know what? The cavemen communicated. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm teaching a course later today uh, about finding the one square inch you can drill a mile deep in the market. That's it. And, and was uh, doing research about the history. I'll, I'm going to do a, a five minute history lesson in, in, in the training about the history of broadcasting. Yeah. Starting 300,000 years ago with the first known uh, uh, human species. Yes. Right. And the speeding up of communication that's happened uh, ever since when we moved from manuscript to printing press in the 1400s yeah. on to today. But it was interesting, even looking at Gutenberg and the printing press, there were monks doing some form of printing 600 years earlier. Yeah. Uh, you know, in China, there were uh, Koreans who were doing some version of it. Uh, so well, the cavemen carved stuff on the wall. That's, right. that's it. Yep. You know, like there it is. Okay. That's yeah. It. All right. Well, then we'll make paper and we'll okay. put it on paper. Yeah. Yeah. And um, people think that innovation comes from this. Oh wow! In a, no, 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 no. And you can actually teach it. I mean, look at Ford. Ford's big thing was the assembly line. Well, you know what? Osmobile came out with the assembly line before he did. The difference was, is that what Oldsmobile's assembly line was, is that the workers moved with their tools to the next station. And it took them a long time to put all their tools together and to move to the next car. Well, what Ford saw, just walking around, he wandered into a slaughterhouse and the carcasses were on a conveyor belt. Right. Carcasses moved. And this guy sliced this and that guy sliced that. And Ford came back and said, I'm going to add something that's out of my domain, a slaughterhouse, to the assembly line and I'll revolutionize it. That's what he did. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. 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 I love that. Um, It's it's I think that uh, that aha moment of, ooh, and then applying it to uh, that specific problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Not currency, Bitcoin. Ah, you know what? All currency is fiat currency. What's the thing here? Let's take it out of the governmental domain. How do we do that? We do person to person. Okay, how do we do that? And that's all that, whatever the guy's name is, Nakasoma, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
let me ask you this as a human being on this journey, you know, you strike me as somebody who has a, a, a fighting spirit uh, who uh, sees problems that don't need to exist and go, uh-uh, not on my watch. Um, I'm curious if there's anything you would equate to faith that's been part of your journey. Anything that like, I don't know why I'm thinking this, I'm getting this idea, anything that guides you, anything that uh, keeps your spirit alive when, <laughs> when the doors keep shutting? Um, I would say I am a person of faith. Um, I, I very much believe that we are here to make a difference. Um, I, as a mother who had a very, I had a very difficult time having children. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I lost nine and I have two amazing, ama I was pregnant for 11 years. I Whoa. have two ridiculously amazing children. Actually, you have to meet both of them. They're both entrepreneurs and innovators uh, like beyond, beyond and seeing them and watching them grow and that you, you have to believe in spirituality when you look at people who are making such an incredible difference and I'm so lucky I get to do what I love every day of my life I don't I and work with people and learn and how lucky I am and you know made it through COVID and here to to make a difference and wow yeah. I'm yeah. so lucky. And, and, you know, Zoom and Netflix, all these things have <laughs> saved, <laughs> saved all of us in the refrigerator, you know. Um, you know, I, I wasn't going to go here until you just said what you just said. So when I, uh, a subset, a part of my client base are consultants, coaches, people that work with people, right? Uh and one of the things that I've found interesting over the years in working with folks is how our life struggles, our core wounds, our biggest challenges shape and mold us and how the struggles end up becoming the gift if, we, if we're willing to go on that journey, right? I'm curious if, you know, when you said I, I had a really hard time uh, conceiving kids, lost nine, right? I'm curious if you see any connection between that and your desire to bring financial literacy to kids. I never looked at my life as a struggle. I know that sounds goofy. Yeah. Uh, it's not that I didn't mourn the loss. It's not that I didn't recognize it. It's not that I didn't know that it hurt. And the way I, I deal with pain by dealing with it and looking at it and talking to it and closing it and moving on. And because I can, and because I'm able to, and that that is not going to define me. Mm. My success will define me. My failures are things that I have to deal with and how lucky I am that I'm not living in, you know, a developing nation where I have to worry about starving children yeah. or, you know, female genital mutilation or and those things. So I have problems that I am able to cope with and how lucky I am. So I think if you come from a, a, 
a situation of gratitude, not being a moron about it. I mean, this is not like Pollyanna. Oh, wow. You know, this sucks, but I'm going to deal with it and I will mourn and I will, but I will deal with it and it will not define me because then you become a victim. And as soon as you become a victim, you're disempowered and you're not going to do a damn thing because you're a victim. And I really, in our society, can't stand victims. And I've managed to marry some. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 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 So, Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I think that's, uh, those are lessons for us all. Uh, Let's wrap up here. Uh, Share just a little bit about the new book. It's called Be Money Smart in Tough Times. And I felt it was it was, a, again, a problem that needed to be solved, that there is a segment of the society who's not affected by this really at all. And we tend to focus on that. And it's like, hold it, <laughs> hold it. You know, we've lost a half a million people that we're even willing to admit to. And so many 10 million people don't have jobs. Are you kidding? And, and they don't know what they're going back to if they are going back to it. Mm-hmm. And it's not just may, you know, wave the magic wand and it all goes away. So I feel that we need to support those people in lots of different ways. So my way is being able to say to them, it's okay. I've got your back with being able to raise financially responsible children, because the fact of the matter is the debt is not going to go away. The, you know, the, Jobs are not going to miraculously appear. You're going to have to deal with this. But don't give up teaching the values and life skills that your kids need to live in the real world. You Mm -hmm. want to come to the world to be that parent. You just can't say, I can't cope with anything. It's okay. I've got your back on this area. You're going to need lots of help and support in other areas. I've got you on this one. So it's a how-to book. And it's in light and, you know. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, Last question. If there's one thing you wish everyone knew, what would it be? That they can actually design their life and do it. It may not be a smart or, or a straight line. It's going to be a journey. And what you have to do is every curve in that journey, look at it and learn from it. And then open up and decide, did I like what this looked like or not? Because when I see young kids, this is what I want to be when I grow up. What are you kidding? It's just talked about, you know, if, if I said to you 30 years ago, you would be doing this. It would be like, what are you talking about? What, yeah. are, you, what are you freaking talking about? So that's how you have to look at it. But every inch of that way, you have to get as much out of it and contribute as much as you can. Are you the person you want to be? what just happened and surround yourself with the people that you want and that you respect and want to be with and set the boundaries of the ones that you know are toxic and try to do that. Legrand taught me boundaries. We would mm-hmm. have great conversations because, you know, I would let these nutcases into my life and Legrand taught me lessons. Have those true friends who have your back, who can also look at you and say, no, you're. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Neil, this has been a blast. 
This I is love very, this conversation. You're, Thank you're you. Wonderful, Jeffrey. Thank you. And uh, when I get an opportunity to meet your kids, I look forward to it. I will connect you. You'll Sounds go. good. Sounds good. Uh, hey, where do we find the book? Where do we find you? Um, me, you can go to neilgodfrey.com, which is my website. You can email me if you want to talk to me, neil at neilgodfrey.com. Um, and the book is on Amazon. Well, you know, that Great. book, Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, is on Amazon. Be Money Smart on Amazon. Fantastic. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your contribution in this world. So grateful. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening in. If this conversation was powerful, if it stirred your soul or inspired your journey, then be sure to share it with a friend. Just copy and paste the link wherever you're listening to this podcast and text that link right now to a friend that you think would be inspired by this episode. And if this is your first time here, be sure to click that subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review so I can get to know you and your thoughts better. To learn more about the work I do with emerging and established paradigm changers, go to thecourageousmessenger.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope to see you in the next episode. Thank you.